This is the Aerobic Capacity Podcast, your source for endurance training. Hey, Chris, we are live. Sammy, how are you? I'm wonderful. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there, you know, a couple days out from Christmas, right? Yep. Yep. Getting the Christmas preparations ready. Yep. No, it's just staying busy. I actually had a good run yesterday. Um, (laughs) Really? How far? Did you you beat Kipchoge? (laughs) No, that was a good conversation, though, last week, wasn't that? hundred percent. I really got good yeah. feedback from the I mean, community. The freestyle some something like that with what he did. No, I think that for me, like out here in, in Tennessee, it's some getting used to, you know, growing up in California, weather was never an issue as far as like, if you wanted to go for a run, you just went outside and did it. And, and, you know, most parts of the world, that's not an option. And, um, you know, for the last couple of days, it's been, yeah kind of brutal you know it seems like it's dark all the time and wind is howling and and uh yeah it's always below freezing and so yesterday yeah it was decent and uh stayed out past dark and and um yeah ran about 8.2 miles my running's gotten pretty good lately i've been inspired a lot by a uh you know maybe that's something we talk about i've been inspired a lot about um this shoe uh, th- that I got a sample of from Adidas um, or a new in Germany, Adidas. Uh, and uh, maybe we should, we should, we can talk about that a little bit, but um, yeah, yeah, no, it's been inspiring. I mean, for me to, to find inspiration from a product is uh, it's interesting because I'm always so skeptical of, of, you know, oh, this is a generational shift. Oh, this is latest and greatest. You know, all these big buzzwords and and um, the shift in technology in product design is is rarely better than than the hype that that they lay it out. And so, you know, for me, these these latest shoes like Kipchoge, Kipchoge, you know, what he wore um, now is called the Alpha Fly uh, under uh, the Nike brand. Um, okay. those, that new uh, carbon plate type shoe uh, has been interesting to me. You know, new technology is something that has always appealed to me. Okay. So, yeah, there was a big buzz about the shoe. Do you have any info? You know, what is it about? I, I have no idea. I just heard that they kind of like banned the shoe in some competition. Is that true? Well, so there is a regulation on the height of the shoe. Um, and so part of it is, is that, you know, the height on Kipchoge's shoe is, is um, it's above this legal maximum, which is 40 millimeters. I want to say that that, that alpha fly gets upwards of 50 millimeters. Now I'm not sure on the production shoe, you know, what's funny is, is that I have, um, I have here the, the, this is the the shoe that that came out um, first, and this one is um, the Vaporfly. Um, let me see. So Fraser, yeah, the Vaporfly. So Fraser got me these, and and I've tested them out, and and um, I'm just a, I'm I'm always interested in in new technology and whether or not. 
there's value there. And, and what I'm talking about is value in terms of performance. Um, you know, when I was a triathlete, one of the things that I recognized uh, was weight mattered on the bike. And, and in triathlons, they didn't have weight restrictions like they do in the tour um, or in professional um, racing. And so you could get your bike under 12 pounds if you wanted to. And so switching out, you know, various nuts and bolts with titanium nuts and bolts, um, you know, your, your, your freewheel in the back, all those cogs, I'm, instead of out of steel, you know, people thought, oh, titanium, but I went straight out to aluminum, um, didn't have the durability, but man, it dropped a lot of weight. And if you've got to take a 12 pound bike up a mountain versus a 20 pound bike, that's a big advantage. Um, so yeah, uh, Kipchoge though, this shoe right here that you're looking at, um, one of the things that, that was really interesting to me is, is, you know, Kipchoge, it, 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 you got to look at a guy. So there's a lot of interesting things, right? So I'm an athlete that really is resistant to change. I don't like changing products. I don't like sampling products. I kind of, get muscle memory with what I have been using. And so to rotate in um, products, um, especially like a brand new shoe, like I'll always have an old shoe um, and then I'll rotate in a new one after I've got somewhere around 200 miles in on a shoe, I'll start bringing in another one. And then somewhere around three, 400 miles, I'll, I'll transfer one out and then, you know, you bring them in and that's how I cycle them. What's interesting, though, about Kipchoge is Kipchoge is known for picking a different shoe for the marathons that he runs in. So the guys run 14 marathons and he's running 11 different shoes. And wow. that that to me is interesting because he's doing it because the shoe that he is getting, the next one, he believes is offering him greater levels of performance. That's the only reason why he's switching is because of performance. It's gonna make him faster, which means that over the 14 marathons that he's done, Nike has delivered to him 11 different shoe designs. And each one he tests on, so he's very rigorous the way in which he tests, um, you know, notes and, and uh, drawings, graphics, um, and he details it after every run that he does. Um, and what he found was, is that this new version uh, has tremendous value and it's different than the version that I was showing you, the, 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 the older model, uh, in the sense that it has those, those pods. If you see those cushioning pods in the front of it, uh, those cushioning pods is what's unique. And it's not quite clear if Kipchoge's pods were filled with, with you know, air or a fluid, um, or, or that his may have just been foam, but the whole concept around those pods in the front is that, um, it, it creates a, a, a solid level of cushioning. Um, but also this, this, what we call like a coefficient of restitution. It's, it's, um, like a diving board, like a springboard type effect where it will load these carbon plates and propel you forward. Um, anyway, the, the two pods in the front, I mean, it's an incredible technology in there in the sense that apparently there are a, a bunch of, uh, fibers 
these strands um, within them and they attach to the top of it uh, and then the bottom of the pod. And what it does is it, it they kind of acts, those, those fiber strands acts like um, flexibility control within this, 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 um, this soft pillow. Um, and what it does is, is um, when the pods are compressed, the strands, they flex. Um, and what they do is they absorb, they help absorb the, the, the source of the impact, um, but also the strands or these fibers create stability there because there's always a tendency that if you land on the ball of your foot and you're hitting a, a huge pocket of, of air, that there is a tendency to feel like you're almost sliding, you know, that, that, that the shoe is shifting laterally. And um, somehow they've been able with these fibers to, to prevent that. And so your, your power that you're, you're creating from the ground force is projecting you forward versus um, uh, some of the energy moving you laterally, uh, which would create an instability issue. So yeah, they've poured a lot into this shoe. I don't know what this shoe costs, but um, I think this version is around 250 US dollars. Um, wow. And yeah, this Alpha Fly is, is, is definitely um, more costly than, than you know, the, this, this Vaporfly. Yeah, so for me, I... I um, 300 euros. Is that what it is? Yeah. For a pair of shoes. Yep. But, you know, honestly, um, you know, so back in my day in doing the sport of triathlons, uh, I was sponsored um, by a bicycle company out of Italy, Campagnolo. And Campagnolo at this time, um, they were a true innovator. And one of the things that was recognized you know, was this aerodynamics and, and can we improve aerodynamics um, through component selection? So I'm not talking about the positioning of the cyclist or the frame, um, but other components and, and handlebar designs came out. And, and uh, this is the time when disc wheels were, were being introduced where instead of spokes, they would, um, they would eliminate spokes and they would either create a solid disc out of carbon fiber or some kind of a fiberglass. And then Campagnolo came out with something that was just unprecedented. They came out with a Kevlar disc wheel. This wheel in a uh, triathlon bike ride, which is 40 kilometers, about 25 miles, they said it would in wind, wind tunnel tests, if you did a 40K time trial on a bike in about an hour, that it would save you a minute of free time. Which, who doesn't want a free one minute of time? Of so you, yeah, you put in the effort of like, you're riding you know, in 60 minutes and then you're, you're coming in in 59 minutes. What an advantage that is. The difference on a top tier athlete to improve like that with just the switch of a component is a massive thing. Well, here was the kicker. The wheels from Campagnolo, and there was only a rear wheel, was $2,500. Well, 
who's going to buy that? <laughs> Even if it's worth a minute, you're not going to be able to afford it. Well, since I was one of the only athletes that was sponsored by Campagnolo, I got it for free. Matter of fact, I still have it. And um, what a dramatic advantage it was. And so when Kipchoge, when it, you know, it, it, it's known that he's worn 11 different shoes in his 14 marathons, he's doing it because it provides a competitive advantage. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And that to me is interesting because my sensitivity from shoe design to shoe design, it's not necessarily about performance. Like I, you know, so I'm sponsored by Reebok and, and you know, I'm a huge fan of what their running group has done and they've really paid attention in shoe design. And one of the things that they have done in their, their shoe designs was eliminating any and all seams. And so right when you put that shoe on, there's a level of comfort that's noticeable. There's no hot spots in there. There's no catch points. And um, you can easily wear those shoes right out of the box with no socks. And that, that to me is a, a performance improvement, comfort. Um, and believe me, I've worn shoes that you know, you trade comfort. Uh, next thing you know, you know, you're doing an Ironman and you've worn a, a, a shoe that that is lighter weight. And you do that because your shoes end up getting wet during the run in the marathon in, in the Hawaiian Ironman in Kona and shoes get heavy. And, you know, it's like sprung weight in a car. You sure don't want your wheels to weigh that much. And so that rotational weight matters. And so, you know, I would, I would wear shoes that unfortunately were too light. And then next thing you know, you're running along, you're about 20 miles in and you feel your toenail, like running around in the inside of your shoe. And you're like, oh, that's not good. Oh, <laughs> not good. Have you so, ever, did you ever lose a toenail or oh, something like that? Oh my God, Sammy. Yeah, no, I, that's one of the things that, you know, you, I talk about it, that, that, you know, CrossFitters. They talk about these rips in their hands and blisters, and it's almost like a life-threatening thing. And look down sometime and imagine your shoe, the front of it is, is colored in blood, and you still got another 10 miles to go. And then you feel a toenail in your shoe. Now, I never wore socks, and so that thing's you know rolling around in there, and What is your thought process on that? You know, when, when you feel the toenail sliding around in there. And for me, it was always one, like, I cannot believe that I am running so fast and so hard and my foot swelling that I actually popped my toenail off. And to me, it was like, man, I, I felt like, like it was kind of like, I was pretty rad. Pretty I like the, I like the comment, uh, Philip Borowski made. Such a small difference, but multiplies by the amount of steps, rotations of the wheel suddenly becomes huge. Yep, it's true. Yep. So like I, you know, I've done a lot of stuff in automobiles and F1 and, you know, sprung weight and, and, you know, like if you look at what brake calipers weigh and, but you look at rotational weight. So that was also one of the things is a rotational weight. So, you know, these, these wheels, like what Campagnolo did and, and it, it launched a whole segment of business where, Now they're looking at the rotational weight and maybe what if we go to a 26 inch wheel instead of a 27 inch wheel? What if we go to 28 instead of 27? What is this rotational difference? And then of course you got to take into account the, the drag of 
you know, the, the, the contact point of the tire hitting the road. And so that was one of the things I played a lot with is that, you know, there were companies that out of Italy who was really creating some great products, but um, unfortunately the problem was, is they were focusing on the resiliency or the durability of tires versus the weight. And I would like to ride in uh, tires back then that were called sew up. So the, 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 the tube was sewn up inside of the tire. So it was really just one piece. And what you would do is glue that onto the rim and the weight of, of, the the sew ups that I would ride were 150 grams, so very lightweight, um, and the contact point was very very small. Now the durability wasn't that great, but I put on brand new pairs, you know, for every Ironman anyways. And out of the 10 11 Ironmans that I did, I've only I only got one puncture the entire time. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting thing too when you're 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 in the middle of a race and all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, what just happened? And that is, you know, my, my, the air is, is disappearing out of the tire and you're making a realization. It's like, wow, I, I know I've practiced this and I should be able to change this tire in a minute, but I'm also 80 miles into a bike ride and I'm pretty fried. And so to get your head straight, to be able to do all of the procedures in order, just like you practiced a thousand times. And I've never been under a test like that. And, but it all like, you know what, it was robotic. I did it within a minute. Um, and uh, yeah, that's where it shows you a little bit of practice. Yeah. Going back to the subject of running shoes, like for the recreational athlete out there that doesn't want to spend 300 bucks on a shoe, like what would your advice be um, what people should look for, should strive for in a running shoe? You know, that is a really good question because I, I, I a lot of times you're not going to notice the difference from one product to the other if you are are not mature in the sport. Um, and, and that takes some time. Now, there's a lot of exceptions to that. So one of the things, you know, so Heidi and I, we went to Trek HQ uh, back in 2017, um, old sponsor, um, and it was nice to be able to go back there and 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 you know, see how things were going in the factory and all of that. And one of the things that we did is we went on a noontime bike ride and Heidi's not a, a, a cyclist. She's not a competitor. And there was a, a decent group. There's probably six, seven of us. And what they did is they gave both myself and Heidi just a couple of loaner bikes um, that fit perfectly, full suspension mountain bikes. And Heidi had one that was probably, it was way nicer than mine. Hers Hers was probably a twelve to thirteen thousand dollar bike, and it had, you know, five inch, six inches of front travel and rear travel, and so that she was also given um, one of their engineers. Um, she went riding and side by side with Heidi, just making sure everything was okay. And we were going to go on to a bunch of trails that they had there in, in um, uh, Waterloo, Wisconsin, and. Uh, uh, we were leaving the parking lot and this just 
tells you about technology. And, and even though she is not at all an experienced mountain bike rider, um, especially in comparison to me, I mean, I've, I don't know, I've logged thousand hours on a mountain bike. Um, so we're leaving the parking lot and we have to go to the backside of their, their, their property. And so what we do is we leave the parking lot and there's a sidewalk and I just, we all just jump the curb and, and ride up across the grassy field. And I, all of a sudden I realize I'm like, Oh my God, Heidi's behind. Oh no. And I turn around and she's never jumped a curb before in her life. And she's got to pick the bike up. Like as you're riding, like pop the front, you know, wheel up and hopefully you have enough momentum where the rear wheel will carry over the top of the curb. I turn around and I'm like, oh no, oh, and she was going to fly over the bars. I mean, that's what would happen. But this bike that she was on, it literally went over it like it was a little tiny, you know, stone in the road. It just went up, up right over the top. It was six inches where it just like absorbed it like it was nothing. And she didn't even know that that's not normal. She just thought that that's what a bike can do. And so the thing is, is like, there is a value in that um, for anybody, you know, that, that it provides something that is, is um, a more comfortable ride. But like one of the things that they talk about is, is, you know, there's a bunch of different materials that bikes are made out of. You know, you got steel frames, you got titanium frames, you got aluminum frames. And they talk about the resiliency of steel and the comfort that they provide. Well, then carbon fiber comes along and they could do all of this, this layup um, of the fiber sheets to create any type of ride that they want. Um, that there's enough um, flexibility in the use of um those those carbon fiber sheets that they can manipulate ride and ride characteristics. A recreational rider is not going to even notice the difference of that. They yeah. won't even notice. Um, and so that's the difference is like some day you may learn that you can appreciate that. But for me, I love training in a conventional steel road bike. I loved having, you know, 28, um, so 28 millimeter tires, really big, wide tires, um, heavy rotational weight. And so I would then have an exact identical fitting bike that I would race in. So one bike weighed 28 pounds and the other bike weighed 13 and a half pounds. And that shift, as soon as I got on the, the race bike was a, a noticeable improvement, but I love training in, in things that were durable, um, and, and um, I would see a dramatic shift when I would get on that, that road bike. In terms of running shoes, one of the things that you would do is a similar process. So you would train in a, a, um, a road shoe, a training shoe, and a training shoe, they're heavier. Um, you know, they're, they're, let's say 10 ounces, 11 ounces. Um, they're bigger, there's more material, there's more support, there's more structure behind it. They're better at absorbing shock. Um, on the most extreme, you would have a, a track shoe, you know, something with spikes. Um, and those are very, very light, but there's not a lot of durability in them. Um, and there's not a lot of comfort in them. And so part of it is, is that you need to figure out as an athlete, um, and if we're talking about the sport of running, 
what is your preference in terms of training shoe? And then what is it that you like in terms of a racing flat? Um, you know, I have a bunch of different types of flats, um, but I really go for something that's minimalistic. Um, that's really what I'm trying to target. Um, not a lot of material, not a lot of weight. So for me, I like to have something, you know, like a, a four ounce shoe, something that's probably a third of the weight of a training shoe. Okay. So weight is something that you would advise the recreational athlete to pay attention to. Besides that, you could probably trust a brand like Reebok that they, you know, come up with something that's good. Yeah. So one of the things that, that you want to think about is that when we run fast, we must deal with balance issues, stability, agility. And so a big cumbersome shoe that weighs three times the amount, it's hard to maneuver in. And so what you want to do is if, if we're talking about racing, then what we're talking about is the extremes. But my preference is, is I like something that is, is in the four ounce range. And you know what, that, that Reebok has come out with stuff like that, that um, it fits incredibly well to the foot. And, and that's where I, the comfort piece comes in. I don't like wearing socks and a lot of people want to know why. Because when you sweat and you don't wear a sock, the shoe bonds to your foot. It becomes a monolithic structure. And um, it feels like you don't have a shoe. It feels like an extension of your foot. And so when we're really talking about, you know, gripping and ripping, then what you want is something that's, you know, more monolithic and feel. And um, yeah, that's why this, this, this shoe, um, I was surprised that I, 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 I liked it um, because it's not what I would consider in my bucket list of, of things, attributes that, that I'm looking for in a performance shoe. It looks like a training shoe, but in fact, this is a high performance shoe. If you want to, you know, run and gun, this is the one, this is it. Um, it's a, it's a good product until Adidas comes along and that's what we were talking about earlier is, is, you know, Adidas comes along and, and I, you know, read with great interest, uh, the results that were at the September marathon. Yeah. In we, before we go to that, um, Philip Borowski has a really good question. Yeah. Coach, how often distance-wise probably should one change running shoes or maybe what indicators to look at when deciding if it's time for a new pair? Yeah, so it all comes down to the cushion of the product. Um, so eventually, all of the compounds in the, the sole of the shoe uh, get compressed. And so it's, it's really whether or not the sole of the shoe still offers the, the cushioning and the stability. And normally that's somewhere around 300 miles. Now it really depends on the type of runner that you are. Um, so if you are a heel striker and maybe a dramatic heel striker, and maybe you pronate, so you, you strike on the inside of your shoe, you because of that, you may have damaged the, the rear of the shoe. Um, you've created this stress concentration in the corner of the back heel of it. And so in that case, since you land there every single time, 
it might not last 300. And so like a guy like Kipchoge, he's 300 to 500 miles. That's what he'll put in on a pair of shoes and he gets them for free. So there's something to say about the value of a broken in shoe. You know, a lot of us, when I change out shoes, um, I, I pull out the, the insole and I, of the old pair and put it in the new pair. Um, just so it gives me a level of, of, of comfort. There's nothing more difficult than breaking in a new pair of shoes. Thank you. Yeah. So this, uh, yeah, so this half marathon, um, I don't know if you could pull up some, there you go. You're so good. Yeah, this is, this is really was impressive. You know, so this is a world record time that was done in the half marathon. And this time it, it, it's, it's legit. Um, so this is the um, Adidas Adios Pro uh, shoe. And so she runs this half marathon and I gotta say, I think it was in, what was the date? September 5th, maybe. Um, Anyway, so her name, Paris, um, um, Jip Cheery, Jip Cheer, Jip Cheery, Cheery, Jip Cheery, Cheery. That right? Yeah, no, Jip Cheer, Cheer. That's it. So it's the fastest time ever by a woman and brand new pair of shoes, production shoe. And she does it, you know, in Prague um, at their half marathon. Amazing. It's eye opening because. Adidas hasn't come out with really a revolutionary product um, in the sport of running. They've they've somewhat you know trailed um, a multitude of companies. And um, just for reference, also, so um, Reebok is owned by uh, Adidas. Anyway, I I was so captivated by this this performance and a production shoe that I had to get it. I had to get the shoe and I had to see what it was like. I mean, for me, I'm a fan of, of new technology and, and all of this stuff with carbon plates. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting direction and I'm trying to figure out whether or not it's just hype. Let's face it. A lot of companies, they'll put a lot of money into product design that product gets created and then they realize it's no better than the one before it but they put out all this propaganda to make it sound better than it is. And there's just in most cases, not a lot of substance behind it. And so you got to find out. And for me, one of the things I like to know is, is I want to run my own tests. I want to check it out for myself. And the beauty of the shoe. So I've actually gone through, this is my second pair of these shoes. Um, and this shoe, it does fall under the, the, a legal limit, meaning it, it, the height of it, what we call the stack height, um, it falls under, it's at 39 millimeters and the max is 40 millimeters. Um, so this, uh, shoe has a, a nine millimeter drop in it. So meaning that the front of the foot is nine millimeters down low than the heel which is more typical of a training type of a shoe. Uh, zero rise shoes are flat in the front and the back. So there is no rise. 
Uh, for me, I like doing right, you know, running and racing flats uh, on the open road that are somewhere around four, maybe six millimeter drop. Uh, so a nine millimeter for me, 10 millimeter, that's about the size for me for a training shoe. But this shoe, um, when I got it straight out of the box, um, it looked a little awkward to me um, in the sense that it's really high off the ground. And when you put it on for the very first time, it actually feels sloppy. It feels uneven. Um, I wouldn't consider it comfortable um, when I first put it on. And a lot of that is, is I'm, you know, resistant to change. I like sticking with the things that have worked for me. And this is a dramatic shift in terms of, of, you know, the change. Okay. The shoe is. But so for me, when, when, when I got this shoe, um, I just sent you some slides, Sammy. But when I sent you this shoe, part of it was is that this shoe, it doesn't have a bunch of carbon plates in it. Um, um, you know, it's not like the, the Nike shoe at all. The way that this shoe is, is, is done is just what you're seeing here. So um, in the sole, uh, at the, on the forefoot, you see these rods and what these rods are, are supposed to do is transfer energy into the metatarsals of the foot. So I don't know if you can see, but I've run on this shoe quite a bit and you can see where those rods are underneath. You see the discoloration of it. Um, it's supposed to, as you bend and are about to toe off, you load those rods with energy and you get this, this, this kick forward, um, this like kinetic energy, the spring-like effect. And I don't know. I mean, I read about that and I'm like, I don't know. Well, when I put it on and it felt sloppy, I'm like, Ugh. so I didn't run on it for like three days just because of my first impressions of it. And finally I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. And I was, went out and I was just going to do a nice 5k easy jog. As soon as you start running, something happens in this product, which is unlike anything that I've ever felt before. And it feels lively. It feels as if there is something propelling you like a motor and it's putting you into this position where you're actually like almost feeling like you're falling forward um, and that your legs are, are, are moving by themselves um, and it's adaptable. So when you are, are going up a hill, your stride length naturally changes and then your, your frequency it increases naturally. It's, it's, it's almost like it's, it's a, a, an afterthought. You, it occurs and then you're like, oh, I need to speed up my tempo because my stride length got shorter. And so as I'm running through this initial 5K and I'm just, my, remember, the only reason why I'm doing it in the beginning is, is because I have the shoes and I need to just check it out to just verify it. So I'm finishing up and I'm like, God, I feel kind of like I want to run an 800 for time. And I have never had a shoe that motivates me to want to run fast. Like I now want to run fast. Running is hard for me. And 
you know, just because you're good at something doesn't mean that it's not difficult. And True. here I am, I'm, I'm on this test run. I'm 5K in and I decide to do an 800. And I ran 800 meters and I ran it in two minutes and 38 seconds, which for me at 57 years old, not even was incredible. And so it was like, something is interesting here. And I started to play around a lot more with the shoe, a lot more. Um, and one of the things I'm for, I'm pretty methodical about as soon as something comes into my, my radar and there's some appeal, what I want to do is I want to do a deeper dive. And just because something feels fast doesn't mean that it is fast. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to put it through the paces and, you know, I started testing it on long runs. Um, what was it like on a long run? How did it feel long runs? You know, how did my, my ankles, uh, my joints feel afterwards? Um, I then would do, you know, hill workout, hill repeats, hill intervals. Um, and, you know, one of the things that was interesting in the running of the hills is that I just found myself accelerating near the top um, much sooner than I normally would. Um, it seemed that my confidence and my my interest to accelerate was was improving and it was enforced which was very strange tempo runs that's where i noticed the biggest difference um you know i do a lot of work with with you know i wear i wear a, a garmin watch and and i track all of the runs and the workouts that i do i know my heart rate i know my paces and so what I decided to do is I'm going to use, you know, my typical training shoe that I wear. And what I want to do is two by 5K. And I'm going to take a five minute break in between. And my goal is to keep my heart rate below 148 beats a minute for both of the 5Ks. The first 5K will be done with my traditional training shoe. Uh, and then the second 5K will be done in this uh, Adidas shoe. And what I wanted to do was same level of intensity. Now, in my second 5K, you should either have a higher heart rate if you're trying to maintain the same speed because of fatigue. Um, and so I was expecting to be slightly slower in the Adidas shoe. And so um, what I sent you, Sammy, was the different examples of, of yeah, so here's here's the layout of of what I did, and and uh, the top one is my heart rate, and the bottom one is um, my speed, so per mile. And so what you're seeing is two by five k, and what you're seeing is a five minute break in the middle. Um, and so on the the you can see on the first five k my heart rate in red. You can see a gradual increase in uh, the heart rate. And then you can see uh, a, dr a, a dramatic increase in heart rate. Um, it happens much faster in my, my second one. And that's, that's part of being warmed up is that your aerobic system is ready to go and it doesn't take as long for your heart rate to get up to its optimal temperature or beats per minute. And so, um, I then took these and I, I wanted to overlay them um, and just get an idea. Can you put up one of those overlays, Sammy? Mm -hmm. 
So one of the things about when you you do a, like this type of an overlay, so here's my heart rate. So on the first one, it took me, so I put in my notes of what I, I had and starting heart rate of, of both of them. But then how long did it take me to get to, you know, really my cruising heart rate, which was around 145. So it took me, interestingly enough, um, about 30 seconds faster on my second 5K. And that's because my heart rate was starting a lot higher. My engine was warm. But my average heart rate on my second 5K was only one beat per minute higher um, on average, which was because of the start. So if I eliminate the start, then really my heart rate for both 5,000 meter efforts was 147. So when you go to the next one and you look at, at pacing, knowing that my intensity level was the same. So for my second 5K, my intensity level was really matching my, my first one. And this is how I test. So I need to know if there's some kind of performance improvement. And here I was. And so just so everyone knows, so my maximum heart rate is 174. My lactate threshold and the movement of running is about 160, 159, 160 beats per minute is roughly where it is. Um, so a heart rate of 147 is, is fairly easy. So look at the average pace, a 758 mile pace in the first one, and then at the same intensity, a 750. So eight seconds per mile. Now, not all that much, but over 5,000 meters, I mean, look what it totaled out to be. It's a decent amount. And what we're talking about is changing a shoe. That's what we're talking about. And so I would fully expect the results to be flipped from this, meaning I would naturally slow from one 5,000 meter effort to the other one. But I got faster and I got dramatically faster. And so to me, when I finish this out and I'm looking at it, it's like, you know, there's something here. There's some value here. There's some performance here. And so is it worth it? <sighs> absolutely, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. I've not come across a shoe that that is, is inspiring to to want to go fast. Um, so one of the things, and I think I sent you, um, so I also tested this thing barefoot and, you know, this, this, there's some stuff that needs some fixing on the shoe, you know, that's for sure. So that's the older version that I had, um, the heels, you know, you could see I got blistered, um, and that was just after just, you know, one run. Um, there's not a lot of support in the heel. Um, there's not a lot of, of um, padding in the heel and the heel somewhat sits a little loose. And I had to do a lot of playing around with the, the lacing of these shoes in order to pull my foot down into the shoe. Um, but there are a bunch of different eyelets that you can do that. It just, it takes a little trial and error. And then one of the eyelets, if you look at this photograph that's circled on the top right, um, you can see a hot spot there on my metatarsal. Um, that is from one of the stitches that holds the tongue in place in the upper. Um, and so the tongue is, is, it's a very minimalistic upper. 
Um, it breathes really well, uh, but because it's thin, um, there's hot spots from where they they essentially sew the the tongue of the shoe to the upper, and that's what you see there is a hot spot. Which it's interesting. The second pair that I got, uh, the hot spot occurred, but it was on the other foot and over my big toe, not my little toe. Strange. Um, yeah, so that's a that that that's a problem. And then if you flip the shoe over and you look at the sole of the shoe, um, it's a very flat shoe. So I I know you have that, Sammy, but you can see on this one, it's it's there's no tread or anything. So geez, like an ice, I don't go, no way. It's not wet. I haven't had a problem when it's wet, um, but I don't run on the trail. I mean, on dirt. Um, so here's my first pair of shoes. And so you can get where, you know, this is something to talk about here. Um, you can tell where I land when I run, um, but you can look at where characteristics, you could see those Kevlar um, rods. I mean, those carbon fiber rods that are there, um, but you can also see where I, I land. So this pair of shoes had somewhere 300 plus miles on it. Um, again, I tracked all of the types of miles that I ran uh, in these shoes. Um, uh, let's see, I wrote that down. 68.2% um, of my miles were easy to moderate intensity, and then 31.8% were hard, high intensities. Um, I ran, let's see, 265 miles on these shoes, um, is what I ran, but a lot of it was hard. So, I mean, to put in, you know, 32% of high intensity, hard running, that's, 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 that's a lot. So if we look at this, this strike here, um, I mean, that's a, uh, a mid foot strike. So just so we talk about the three different foot strikes. So a heel strike is landing on the heel. Uh, a mid foot strike is really timing it so that you're flat uh, where the you land on the ball of the foot and the heel of the foot at the same time. Uh, and then a four foot strike or a toe strike would be more towards the toes. Um, now, when you're running fast, there is a natural tendency to lean forward and to land more on the balls of the foot. So when we talk about lean, what we're talking about is a lean from the ankles. So when you look at a sprinter like Usain Bolt or even Kipchoge when he ran because he was running you know, 535 or 435 miles for 26.2 miles, he was more towards the ball of the foot. Um, I want to say a Four and a half percent lean gets you a four minute and 30 second mile time. So we're not talking about a significant lean. Now, they also talk about a toe strike and a toe strike and people think, oh, that must be the same as landing upon, you know, the forefoot strike. Well, the thing is, is that um, when you run and you relax your ankle as it swings through, there's a tendency to supinate. The foot will roll to the outside. And if you 
land on the ball of your foot, more than likely it's going to be on the outside near your baby toe. So yeah, they call like a, a toe strike. That would be more like landing where your baby toe is, which is where my foot lands and makes contact first. But in reality, it's a, you know, a midfoot strike. Um, now, when I land, my heel is probably off the ground by an eighth to a quarter of an inch, but my heel makes contact shortly after the ball of my foot makes contact with the ground. Now, there's there's this camp that says that, you know, landing on the ball of a foot is is, you know, the optimal way to run. I don't know if I feel that way. Um, there is, without a doubt, kinetic energy um, that you load into your Achilles tendon and calf complex by landing on the ball of the foot. Um, and when you do that, you get this spring-like effect that this free kinetic energy to help you move forward. Anybody can do this test by just jumping rope. And when you jump rope, you land on the ball of your foot. Keep jumping rope and jump from your heels. And you'll notice that that, that kinetic energy is gone by jumping from your heels. The thing is, is that you know, we, we, we want to recognize that there are optimal um, running forms based upon speed. So let's just say that we're walking. Then is it optimal to land on the ball of your foot? Is that the most efficient way to walk is land on the ball of your foot? And everybody heel strikes when they walk. And so part of it is, as I know from my own experience, that when I get fatigued, um, long runs, races, Ironman in Hawaii, um, my running form, it shifts. Um, and it shifts based upon my level of fatigue. Running on the ball of your foot, it takes a lot more power than shuffling. And when you shuffle, there is a efficiency in landing on the heel and rolling through the foot. And that's why these shoes are designed for both types. If you land on your heel, there is value. If you land on the ball of the foot, there's value. And that's what they recognize is that you wanna make sure that a shoe has these, these multi-purposes. That's why when you look at these shoes, look at the angle back here. It's designed to hit the ground flat and then roll. And so a lot of times what happens is, is that people will, they'll heel strike and they'll land out here. So look at the heel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's different, right? Because people will land out here and they sometimes will roll forward. Sometimes yeah, they'll stay in. And so part of it is, is that I know from my own experience that when my speed slows to somewhere around 730 mile pace, 7, 730 mile pace or slower, and if I have some miles on my legs, I'll heel strike. It's a more efficient way for me to run. Um, if I'm doing a typical training run and you could see from the shoe wear that's on this, you know, this Adidas shoe that, you know, I, I was testing out for myself, you can see that, um, most of where I was landing was out there on the, the midfoot ball of the foot. And so most of it should be there because I hadn't done any races in this. And most of the runs I were doing was, was fast tempo, way under seven minute pace. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, very, it's a, it's a interesting 
phenomenon. I thought it was it's kind of cool to see. Just because someone says it's better doesn't mean it's better. Show me, show me. One one question: Why would you run without socks? <laughs> well, so that's what I said earlier. Is that I like when I run without socks, like this shoe, this this Reebok shoe. This is a shoe that I've worn without socks, and the reason is is because when you sweat, the shoe bonds to the foot. It glues to the foot. And so it creates this monolithic structure, this, this one okay. piece structure. And so when you run, it doesn't feel like you have a shoe. This Adidas shoe, when you walk on it, you know, you're walking in this shoe. It's sloppy. It's not, it's not a walking shoe. This shoe is made to run fast. And the faster you run, the more comfortable it gets. It's almost like a race car. It settles into that 180 mile an hour speed. That's what that shoe is. And so for me, I one of the, the, the characteristics in a high performance shoe is, does it have good balance and stability and agility? You know, can you cut well in it? Can you turn well? Um, and without a doubt, all of those types of, 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 performance qualities go up without wearing socks okay we got an interesting comment heel toe striking i find manipulating it a bit uh, a bit helpful in different crossfit workouts so i can rest protect quads or hamstrings a bit taking other movements into consideration where'd you figure that from that's from me so yeah so one of the things that i've talked about a lot and you know what this is a smart comment is the manipulation of foot strike based upon the workout. And we know that we land on the ball of our foot, um, you know, midfoot or a, a forefoot strike, that what we're doing is we're activating our quads. And likewise, if we heel strike, the hamstrings are the things that get activated, the muscle groups that get activated. So one of the things that, you know, I, I teach and I've been teaching for a long time is manipulating or learning the skill of how to manipulate foot strike based upon the workout. And part of it is, is that you want to always look at a workout. And if it's a combination of, of running with some type of a lift, how do you maximize performance? And that's what we always want to do is maximize performance and workouts. And if we maximize performance in the workout, then that maximizes our adaptation. So if we have a workout that has front squats in it and running, then one of the things that we do know is that when we do our front squats, we're going to have quad activation. And if we run and we're on a midfoot strike or forefoot, stri forefoot strike, we're going to have quad activation. And it might be beneficial to develop the ability to manipulate your foot strike and to heel strike intentionally to preserve the integrity of your quads for the front squat. Likewise, if you had a workout that had, you know, let's say GHD sit-ups and running or, or deadlifts um, with hamstring activation, um, um, I'm sorry, back extensions or, or um, deadlifts, then you know what, maybe what we would want to do is manipulate the foot strike and land on the ball of our foot. Is there um, any like professional CrossFit athlete out there that pays attention to that during competition that you are aware of? 
Um, you probably teach teach it uh, to most of them, but yeah, I've taught it. Um, part of it is is that so here's the thing to answer your question. No, I don't think so. Um, part of it is is that you want to teach athletes things in parallel. If you only get some you know, an athlete for, let's say two workouts a week, then you got to maximize adaptation, um, on multiple levels in parallel. And so, you know, like, like a good example of this, you know, one of the things that, that back when I, you know, working with Jason Kalipa is that there were many, I didn't have a lot of time with him, you know, so we started working together in, in Dece December and July was the CrossFit games and we had to take a guy that was arguably one of the worst endurance athletes in the sport of CrossFit elite CrossFitting um, and try and, and, and improve that weakness in that seven month period of time, not a lot. And so what I had to do is I had to do a lot of things in parallel. So he was really a recreational runner at best when we started and what I had to do is convert him into becoming a competitor. So there's a big difference between what a recreational athlete is thinking and doing versus what a competitive athlete is thinking and doing. So, an, you know, a lot of people want to know, like, what's the main difference? Well, a competitor thinks tactically. They're thinking strategically. They're not worrying about their breathing. They're not worrying about their running form. They're not worrying about their foot strike. That all happens naturally. That's instinct because they've done it so much. And so it's the same thing that when I was talking about changing my bike tire, you know, during the Ironman, it was instinct. I didn't, I've done it so many times, thousands of times that when I finally came down to the test, it was autopilot. So what you want to do is you want to prepare athletes so that when they learn the basics, you know, like Jason had to learn how to pace based upon the time domain of a workout. He, you know, the strategy of it, he had to learn his breathing. He had to learn his, his, um, running mechanics. And so I would always do all the workouts with him. And one of the things that I wanted him to recognize is when you're leading, there's a lot of pressure on you. You know, if, if, if he does improve his running, Jason does, then he's going to be with others. He's going to be in a pack. He's going to be in a group. He's not going to be by himself in last place where, you know, no one's stealing his air, no one's crowding him, no one's bumping him in the turns. And so what I would do is for fun during the track workouts is I would intentionally bump him and not just bump him a little bit. I would, he would always be on the inside of me. And so I'd be out there like on, you know, partially in lane two and he'd be in lane one. And what we would do is as we would, you know, round the turn, I would kind of squeeze in a little bit because, Lane two is seven and a half meters further than lane one. Well, you do that long enough, it's not as fair. And so naturally what you do is you kind of crowd in a little bit. And I would accidentally on purpose in the turn when I'm, I'm crowding him is I would bump him. But more importantly, what I would do is I would take my elbow and I would jam it into his bicep. And when I would do that, I would kind of push off a little bit and push him back a little bit. And I would pretend, oh man, sorry, bro. Sorry. Like, oh man, you know, like it was an accident <laughs> until one time we were probably like, I don't know, three and a half, four months into to working out together. And um, 
we're rounding the turn and and I'm all that's good enough time as any. And I crowd him in the turn. Next thing you know, you know, I take my elbow back and I jam him in his bicep. And he turns as we're running and he says, You do that again to me. I'm gonna flip you with my my elbow and I'm gonna fly you from lane one all the way to lane nine. And then that four foot chain link fence, I'm gonna flip you, make sure you're going fast enough where you're gonna fly over that fence. And I'm like, and he's like, you know, I'll do it too. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, and I stopped. I stopped in the middle of the interval and he kind of like slows down. He's like 10 meters in front of me. He turns around. He's like, what? Did I offend you or something? And I'm like, I'm so proud of you. And he's like, I am so, we always had these dialogue like mismatches. And he's like, I'm so confused. I, I threaten you. And now you're, you're proud of me. Why are you proud of me? <laughs> and I'm like, because you know, I'm playing a game. You know, now that I'm playing a game. And I said to him, I said, you know what? I will never treat you this that way ever again. And you want to know why? Because you're no longer just some recreational athlete working on his mechanics while running, working on his pacing, working on his breathing, that you're now a competitor. And I never treated him that way. And I never looked at him that way ever again. He was now a threat to me in workouts. He was aware of a tactical issue or a tactical advantage. Well. Yeah. And so that's where you want to teach people that, you know, when I'm running side by side, Hey, can you, is the sound, is the sun covered by clouds or is it, is it, is it direct on us? Do you know that? And so that's what you want is you want them to become competitors and they don't know what a competitor is because they haven't been there. That's the job of what a coach should be is taking somebody who's recreational and compressing the schedule. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I love it. I love it. We just did an hour and almost 10 minutes. Perfect. We should end on a high note. That was really, really cool. Always good, Sammy. Always All good. Right. So I think we'll take a break after Christmas. We'll come back and yeah. Um, yeah not sure what we should yeah. talk about, but we'll come, we'll come up with something cool. <laughs> there's, there's so many topics. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right, man. Thanks, Sammy. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.